0: Let's start off in John chapter 12, verse number one. We're going to read 28 verses. And I just want you to let the word of God wash over you this morning. The Bible says in verse number one, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Set the story up real quick, like Lazarus has only been recently raised from the dead. There's not been a long period of time that has clicked off the clock from Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and very shortly after leaving there he comes back he returns what we know is that it's exactly six days before the Passover what's going to take place right before the Passover Jesus is going to be hung on the cross of Calvary so we are near mere days away From the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary, that's where we find ourselves here. Verse number 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Of course, Jesus knows what lies ahead. Verse number 9. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus's sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests cons- uh, consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Wrap your mind around that for a second. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and the priests are so irate over what's taken place and how many countless thousands of people are placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ that they decide they're wanting to kill the man again to get rid of this problem of theirs. Now, look at verse number 11. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they, had, uh, when they heard that Jesus was come to Jerusalem Now listen, this is what what we celebrate today. They took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. All very important wording there. There's a reason why these people were saying this on this day. It's because there were many of them that were fully aware of this prophecy. Now, the disciples had forgotten it, we find out. But there were many people fully aware of this prophecy that should be fulfilled. And they were literally out in the streets awaiting who would come over the hill to see who their king would be. And then, of course, it goes on in verse 14. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, the king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, perceive ye how ye prevail, how ye prevail nothing. Now listen to this phrase. Behold, behold. The world is gone after him. They're, they're losing their minds because they're losing their power. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was in Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered and saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that keepeth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence, we do so with hearts full. Full of the recognition of what took place on this special day. Full of the thought of what it must have been like to watch the King of Kings coming. Lord, I pray today that you might speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, I pray that you'd set aside every distraction, everything that might be hindering your spirit from coming and moving and working in us and through us today. Lord, would you be victorious over that? I plead the blood of Jesus Christ upon this place and ask that you might rid us of any evil, of any temptation, of any barricade or boundary that might be set that we keep your word from going forth freely this morning. Lord, I ask your sweet, sweet spirit to prevail today in taking your word and reaching into the hearts and lives of each person that's here to show us, Lord, the value of surrendering our lives to you and allowing you to reign supreme over our lives, especially in the day and hour that we find ourselves. Lord, wake us up in our spirit and in our soul, that we might be drawn closer to you today. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I've just read for you the account of what Palm Sunday is all about. Just uh, about five days before Jesus, about four and a half, five days before Jesus would hang on the cross of Calvary, there was a, such a throng of people from Jerusalem that gathered along the street as Jesus rode into town and they worshiped him. There were many that were bothered by this, many that were frustrated by how they had tried so hard to stop Jesus from accomplishing all of this prophecy, and yet still the prophecy was fulfilled. We talked a little bit about that this morning in Sunday school, that no matter how hard you try to stop Jesus' word from being fulfilled, it can't be stopped. We can't stop Bible prophecy from happening. We can fight against evil. We can share the light and gospel of Jesus Christ. We can love people and try to draw them to faith in Christ. We can do all that we can do in that measure. But the truth of the matter is Jesus is coming. His return is imminent. And no matter how hard we try to stop all of the things the Bible tells us are going to take place in the final days leading up to Jesus' return, you can't stop Jesus from fulfilling His own word. It's impossible. And here we have that exact case in, in this particular historical account where these priests, these scribes, these Pharisees, they're trying everything they can to stop Jesus from being who Jesus was. And it, they find themselves beating their head against the wall. The whole world, they say, is turned after him. They're frustrated because they can't stop this from happening. I want to preach a sermon entitled This Morning, The King is Coming. The King is Coming. You'll see that exact phrase multiple times in some of the scripture that we look at throughout the course of the morning. But we find that same phrase in verse number 13. Look at it with me again. It says, they took the branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. I want to start by just simply stating this, and we'll really drive this home at the end of the sermon. Jesus is still the King of kings, and He is still the Lord of lords. If there's any question in your heart, any question in your mind, who's in control today, let me just put your heart and mind at rest. Again, I've said it many, many times. I'm going to remind you again this morning. There is no secret society that reigns supreme over the whole world. My God reigns supreme. He always has. He always will. He's still on His throne just as much today as He was when He framed the universe. The very Word of God that went out, that formed in fashion, everything that we see is still the same Word that is spoken in the hearts of men and changes that heart for all eternity. God is still in control. Jesus is still King. Jesus is still Lord. Don't ever let Satan steal that from your heart. No matter how hard the world tries to steal that away, no matter how many things are thrown at you in the way of deception, rest assured, Christian, that Jesus is King of kings and He is Lord of lords. Now I want to quickly review what we looked at last Sunday. I do believe that it is relevant to this morning's sermon, although they don't tie hand in hand with one another. You might remember last Sunday we preached a sermon about not avoiding Jesus. The fact that so many folks, when you start talking about Jesus coming back, when you talk about who Jesus really is, not just that he's my best buddy that loves me and and he'll just, you know, if I do something bad, he'll just, you know, pat me on the back of the head and say, try to do better next time. We're talking about Jesus as he really is. King of kings and Lord of lords. So many folks, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what Jesus has done, and, about, and in light of what Jesus is about to do in history, try to avoid him like the plague. And this morning, what I want to t- do is take some time and I want to emphasize what the king of kings will do in your life if you will just stop avoiding him and let him come in. What's amazing is there's multiple different prophecies in the Old Testament And what we're going to do is we're going to explore these prophecies this morning. All of them that led up to the triumphal entry of Christ. And the hope is that we can learn what our King Jesus brings to those who trust Him. The question this morning is, what does the King offer? To those who by faith will allow their heart, their soul to rest in what He has done for them. I think once you find out what the King has to offer... What the King is capable of doing in your heart and in your life, not just to those of you here that may not know Christ personally as your Savior, but also to those who do know Him, but have removed Him from the throne of their heart and have usurped His authority in their lives. If you will relinquish Control of your own heart and your own life and you will give the king of kings his proper authority in your life. What you'll find is that king of kings and that Lord of lords is capable of transforming your life into everything God intended your life to be. You do not have to live in constant defeat, in constant darkness, in constant deception, even in the middle of a world like ours. You can live victorious. You can live upright. You can live with confidence and with hope and with strength, living in the hand of the one who created you. Boy, isn't it sad that we forget this sometimes. The king is coming. What does he come to do? Well, we're going to look at four different prophecies this morning foretelling this exact moment that we just read about in John chapter 12. And what we're going to find, I've never seen this before. I was excited to see it as I was studying for this morning's sermon. But I was excited to see that in each of these prophecies that point ahead to Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there's something extraordinarily valuable that we can learn about our King. And what he offers to his children. So let's start by turning to Psalm chapter 118. You can turn away from John chapter 12 for the time being. And turn to Psalm chapter 118. We will see one of the first mentions of the triumphal entry of Christ. I love Psalm 118. And I'm going to tell you, and I may be wrong on this. But I'm going to tell you the inclination that I get from Psalm 118. What I, what I read as I'm reading this, I'm imagining the psalmist as he's penning these words. And I believe what's happening here is he is praying to God, asking God for clarity and revelation on what lies ahead. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit of God steps onto the scene and opens the eyes of the psalmist wide to see not just what's going to happen in the immediate future, but what's going to happen all the way up to Christ's coming. And he is so overwhelmed by what he sees as he's pinning it down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's jumping from one highlight to the next highlight and the next highlight to the point he gets overwhelmed with what God is revealing to him. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be those prophets? That God was whispering and speaking and showing and revealing all that was to come? What's amazing is you and I are on this side where we can look back to what Jesus did and compare it to the prophecies that were foretold on him. But these folks were looking ahead at what had not taken place in the historical calendar yet. But in the mind of God, they were happening in the present. So let's jump in here. Psalm chapter 118 and look at verse 19. I think you'll see this as I've just described it to you. You'll see this jumping from one amazing event in the life of Christ to the next. And he gets to the point where at the end he has to say in verse 29, I'll give thanks unto the Lord for he is good for his mercy endureth forever. Look at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You see what he's getting at here. He's seeing God's plan of salvation unfold before his eyes. And he's realizing that there is this stone named Jesus going to come. He's going to be rejected. By the builders. And nevertheless, that same stone is going to become the head of the corner. And by that stone, we can receive salvation. He's becoming overwhelmed by the reality of it. And that's why at the end of verse 23, he says it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed, now here's the, the prophecy fulfilled, verse 26. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the Now listen to this phrase. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. He's literally peering into the final week of the life of Christ and he's seeing the headstone that's being rejected by the builders and he says it's marvelous. And then he looks ahead and he can see this triumphal entry of Christ and all of these shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's overwhelmed by it and he has to praise God. And then he sees into that final moment when Christ would be bound to the cross of Calvary and offered as a sacrifice for all mankind. And he closes with the words, I'll give thanks unto the Lord for he is good for his mercy endureth forever. He's overwhelmed by this final week of Christ that he's just prophesied about. But back in the very middle of this, we see that very phrase that those that were ushering Christ in, laying palm branches out in the street, we see in verse number 26, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. What he's getting at here, he's seeing this very moment. And what I find as we read this passage of Scripture, these 11 verses or so, is we see something about this king and what he comes to bring to any that will trust him. What we find in this passage is that he comes to bring salvation. He comes to bring salvation. And I believe as we break this passage apart, we can see... How he brings this salvation. What he does in accomplishing this salvation. First thing we see is that his righteousness robes us. Look at verses 19 and 20. The psalmist says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. Who was it that built the gate? Jesus did. Who was it that opened the gate? Jesus did. All he requires of us to to take on his righteousness is that we might walk through the gate by faith. Nothing that we do in and of ourselves, no capability that we have to garner the righteousness of Christ, we are robed in his righteousness by faith in his gospel. First thing he does whenever we trust him as our Savior is he robes us in his own righteousness. Wrap your mind around that, Christian. Christian. You know, I love uh, that passage or that verse in uh, it is well with my soul when it says my sins not in part, but the whole are nailed to the cross. I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. You know, one of the things that I get most excited about when I think back to my salvation, listen, I get excited about heaven. I get excited about the liberty that comes with knowing Christ. I get excited about the joy that God brought me. I get excited about the new revived purpose that that brought me. But I tell you, one of the things I get the most excited about when I think back to Jesus saving my soul is the fact that He cleansed me from all unrighteousness. I think about my past sin, my present sin, and my future sin. It's all under the blood of the Lamb. I've been robed in His righteousness. That's the first thing He accomplishes when we place our faith and trust in Him. But the second thing He does is His majesty moves us. His righteousness robes us, but His majesty moves us. Look at verse 21. The psalmist says, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. His majesty moves us. At least it should. You know, it's a sad day whenever we are so, our eyes and our minds have become so captive to the world And it's devices that we take very little time to be moved by the majesty of our maker. Just as we were about to step up here to preach this sermon this morning, you might have saw me slip out the back door there. And as I came back around, you were in probably just halfway through the first verse of sweet hour of prayer. And I stopped at the doorway and I just scanned over the congregation And as you were singing that song and I was looking at each of you and I was imagining the fact and overwhelmed with the fact that God has brought us here together for such a time as this. I was just allowing His majesty to move me for a moment. Would to God that we would take more time out of our busy schedules to be moved by His majesty. To stop looking down so much and to take a moment out of our day and look up again. To look out over that vast expanse of the heavens and to know that our God still loves us. He's still actively involved in our lives and allow that majesty of our maker to move us again. Move us to what, preacher? Well, move us first of all to praise. I won't take the time to reread it, but the first thing we see is that the psalmist is moved to praise God like he's never praised him before. Because he's coming face to face with the majesty of what God's plan is in redemption. Not only His majesty moving us to praise, but His majesty moves us to marvel. Oh, I tell you, Christians need to spend more time marveling at God. I tell you, if you would, any given morning, and I'm preaching to myself here, okay? So if you think Is this just you, I got news for you. I'm preaching to me right here. If instead of making our morning ritual, reaching over and grabbing our cell phone. And instead would, t- would just choose to take the first five minutes of our day and silently marvel at God. Look out the window, go out to the back deck, sit out on the front porch, kneel down at the, at the couch in the living room. But just take five minutes to start our day marveling at God. It would change our whole perspective of life. His majesty moves us to praise. It moves us to marvel. But it also moves us to gladness. I do want to focus on this one for a moment. Look at verse uh, 24. It says, This is a day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. When was the last time that you really said that in a minute? You know what most Christians do all day, every day? can't believe God's putting me through this again. Spend almost all day, every day just complaining about everything. Yesterday, it was too hot. The day before that, it was too cold. My kids called me today. And then two days later, my kids called me today. I mean, we find ways extraordinarily to complain about everything. Everything. But whenever we take time and we focus on the majesty of God and we realize the grace of God and the mercy of God and the goodness of God, even in a world like we're living in now, forget about the circumstances, forget about the trials for a moment and realize that God is carrying you through. And then all of a sudden you'll find that your sorrow can be turned to joy, that your complaining can be turned to praise. That what was once hard to you, now you realize it's God that's getting you through His majesty moves us to praise, to marvel, to gladness. His righteousness robes us. His majesty moves us. And then thirdly, His sacrifice is what saves us. Look at verse 25 with me again. It says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the Lord of the altar thou art my god and i will praise thee thou art my god i will exalt thee o oh, give thanks unto the lord for he is good for his mercy endureth forever you see those of you that might be here that have never entered into a personal relationship with jesus i'm here to tell you the first thing the king comes to bring is he comes to bring you salvation and if you'll place your faith and trust in him i know what satan does Because he did it with me. Right before I accepted Christ as my Savior, he would whisper all of these lies into my ear. He'd come along and he'd whisper and he'd say, You can't get saved because the whole church already thinks you are. Or he'd come along and he'd say, You can't get saved. Think about what you did last night. Jesus can't forgive that. Or he'd come along and he'd say, That Bible was just written by a bunch of men. It's all fairy tale. He would come and he would fly his deceits all around in my mind to the point where I postponed and postponed and postponed and postponed. May I tell you, today is not the day to postpone. The king has come. He's already been here. He's already accomplished everything necessary for your soul to be saved. And all he awaits for you to do is to rest in what he's done on your behalf. To buy faith, trust what he has done. The king comes to bring salvation. Number two, the king comes to lift the standard. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter number 62. And what we're going to find here is another prophecy foretelling the triumphal entry of Christ. Isaiah chapter number 62. We're going to move through these pretty quickly here. At least as quickly as we can. We'll see how that goes doesn't always work out in my favor in regards to how quickly we can get through it. But look at Isaiah chapter number 62. We'll jump in at verse number 10. And what we find in this foretelling of Christ's triumphal entry is that the king has come to lift the standard. Look at Isaiah chapter 62 and verse number 10. The Bible says there, go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people cast up. Cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye. To... Now, listen to this exact phrase here. This is again Bible prophecy for telling the triumphal entry of Christ. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. For telling this triumphal entry of Christ. But what we see in this passage of Scripture, the thing that sticks out to me is whenever it says, Lift up the standard for the people. You know, that's exactly what Jesus did when he came. As king of kings and Lord of lords, he held up a standard for you and I. No longer are we to compare ourselves with the Old Testament law. No longer are we to compare ourselves with one another. We are only able to compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we have no choice but to be humiliated at the reality of how far short we fall. And we have no choice but to strive to do better. It's easy to justify my behavior. It's easy to justify my walk when I'm simply comparing it to this person or that person. But whenever I examine my life in light of the standard that Jesus is and was, I'm humbled with the reality that I face, that I have fallen so short of what God's expectation was. What we find in these three verses is that His standard is high. Now, there's a lot of churches, they don't want to preach this these days. They don't want to talk about God's standard for his people. We want to think in somehow, some way that because of what Jesus did, he eliminated the standard. That now there is no standard. You can just be whatever you want to be, do whatever you want to do, however you want to live. But we got to remember in Romans chapter number six, whenever Paul asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he respond with? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Christ comes to lift the standard. His standard is high. His standard is also honest, by the way. It's honorable. He's not asking us to do anything that he has not already done. You know, it's one of the biggest struggles of being a preacher. is standing behind this sacred desk and knowing that what I am telling you at times is contrasting. To what I'm living at home. And having to bear that burden. And carry that before God. And to know that that here I am preaching it. But there are times I struggle to live it. It's inconsistent. I'm telling you church that there are times that my life is inconsistent. Now I try to do the best I can. But I'm human. I'm frail. My heart is weak and fragile. Satan is trying to tear me down just like he's trying to tear you down. He's trying to distract me just like he's trying to distract you. And the burden of knowing that there are sermons that I have been called to preach that I know are in contrast to the life that I'm living is one of the hardest, most difficult things to do. But when Jesus asks us to do something, it's always consistent, it's always honorable. He came, he suffered temptation just like you and I did, but he remained victorious from start to finish. Never one time did he sin. So he has every right to ask us to live up to the standard. His standard is high. His standard is honest. And his standard, thirdly, is holy, holy, holy. Look at verse number 12 again. It says, and they shall call them the holy people. When the world looks at you, is that what they call you? Is that what they have to admit? They may admit it in a sarcastic way. They may call you holier than thou. But the truth of the matter is, we're to live holy lives. God says, be holy for I, the Lord, thy God, am holy. He hasn't changed his mind on that. So he comes to bring salvation. He comes to lift the standard. Thirdly, he comes to make a statement. Turn with me to Daniel chapter number 9. Daniel chapter number 9, I, I just absolutely love this particular passage and how it relates to what we're referring to in the triumphal entry of Christ. One of the most extraordinary Bible prophecies ever, in my opinion. I love Bible prophecy, I've studied it for years, but I'm telling you a few I find more intriguing than, and more spectacular than Daniel chapter number nine, verses 20 through 25. Let's look at it together. In verse number 20, the Bible says, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, by the way, that's a great outline for how to pray. I'm going to read that again. You ready? And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation and he informed me and talked with me and said, "O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications and commandments came forth, and I am come to show thee. For thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Here it is, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. He literally lays out. The groundwork of everything Jesus is going to accomplish in his time on earth. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So what he does for us here is he explains to us plainly the exact amount of time that's going to click off the clock from the time that the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt all the way to the time that the Messiah is revealed. And what we find is that it's 69 weeks. 69 weeks. These weeks each represent seven years in the Jewish calendar. Now, when you click off the clock from the time, which we know, according to Nehemiah, we know exactly what day. I believe it's the 10th day of the month Nisan in the Jewish calendar during the reign of King Darius. Now, if you start there and you go exactly to the day, 69 times 7 years in the Jewish calendar, what you land on is March 30th, A.D. 33, What day was that? We just read about it in John chapter 12. On the exact day, riding the exact correct animal, with the exact right statements being made by the children of Israel, the Messiah comes riding into Jerusalem. This gives me holy chill bumps talking about it. Folks, this is is extraordinary. We're not talking about hitting it roughly in the right time span. On March 30th, A.D. 33, the Messiah was to come riding on the ass's colt into Jerusalem. And on that exact day, in that exact same fashion, here comes Jesus riding as King of kings and Lord of lords. So what statement then was he making? Well, it's laid out for us in verse 24. We'll read it again and I'll mention these quickly to you. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Here it is. To finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sins. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up the vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy. What statement is he making? He's saying, I am. Jesus is saying, I am the one who will finish off transgression. I am the one who will make an end to sin. I am the one who will make reconciliation for iniquity, who will bring about everlasting righteousness, who will fulfill every word of prophecy and the one who will be called the most holy. What a statement. When he came riding in on that, in that triumphal entry, on that exact day, exactly as he was supposed to, He was letting the whole world know, I'm here. I've come and I will accomplish exactly what the father has set me out to accomplish. What a statement. The last thing the king comes to do is to reign as sovereign. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter number nine. Zechariah chapter number nine. One of those tiny little prophetic books towards the end of your Old Testament, Zechariah chapter number 9, and we're going to look at verse number 9. One of the clearest foretellings of the triumphal entry of Christ, Zechariah chapter 9. We'll jump in at verse number 9. The Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just And having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. There it is. Fulfills every tiny detail on exactly the right moment in time. You know, he comes to reign as sovereign as we read down through the rest of this chapter. We don't have time to do so. But if you want to read verses 10 through verse 17, what it does is it lays out what this king will come to do. And the one thing we see in these passages of Scripture is that his power exceeds our circumstances. We'll go ahead and read it. Verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. His power exceeds our circumstances. The bow may be pulled against you but his power is greater than that. The horse may be riding against you, but his power is greater than that. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? His power exceeds our circumstances, his power exceeds our condition. Look at verse eleven. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. You know what he's getting at there? They are in a hopeless situation. Their soul is in a hopeless situation. There's no way of getting out. There's no way of being sustained. They are in a pit where there's no water. They don't even have anything to drink. And what he's saying is Christ comes to lift those out of that. Verse 12, turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. I love that phrase, prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. His power exceeds our circumstances. His power exceeds our condition. I don't care where you're at. I don't care what condition you're in. Satan will do his level best to convince you that you are unredeemable, that you are unsavable, that you are unreachable. You are grossly underestimating the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ if you think somehow you have outsinned his grace. His grace is sufficient, his blood powerful enough to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. His power exceeds your condition. And then lastly, praise God, his power exceeds our captor. Look at verses 13 through 17. It says, "When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised yeah filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrows shall go forth as the lightning. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones." And they shall drink and make a noise as through wine. And they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. His power exceeds our captor. The one who is after us, which, by the way, let me be abundantly clear. As long as the gospel is preached from this pulpit, as long as the word of God goes forth from this church unreservedly and unapologetically, as long as we have a revision in our bylaws protecting and trying to guide us into the future of what we face as far as darkness is concerned, as long as you are shining your light and I am shining mine, we are a massive target but I'm thankful God's power exceeds the power of our enemy. The Bible says greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Here's my question for you in closing this morning. We talked about what the king has come to do, what he's come to bring, the standard he has come to lift, the statement he has come to make. The question is, will you let him come? Will you personally let him come? Will you let Him bring salvation to you? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, today would be a great day to let Him do that. Will you allow Him to lift up the standard for you? That's a little trickier, isn't it? For those of you that know Christ as your Savior, all of a sudden you're left questioning, am I really living the life God wants me to live or have I allowed worldliness and sin to creep into my life? Will you allow the King to bring you salvation? Will you allow the King to lift up the standard for you? Will you allow the King to make a statement through you? The very statement Jesus came to make is a statement that He now chooses to make through you, Christian. All of those things we just listed off is a statement God wants to make in and through you. Will you let Him do that? And then lastly, will you allow the King to reign as sovereign inside of you, Will you let him be the King of kings and the Lord of lords of your life personally? Take some time today when you go home and read John chapter 12, verses 23 through 28 again. And there's one phrase that Jesus ends his statement with in his conversation with the Father. He says, Father, glorify thy name. That's what we're here to do. And I've just given you the road map on how to do it. You say, preacher, how do I glorify God in a world like this? How do I I really give God the glory? How do I allow my life to reflect His glory and to bring Him glory? Well, first you've got to be saved. But then you've got to allow Him to lift up the standard in your life. You've got to allow Him to make a statement through your life. You've got to let Him reign as sovereign in your life. And when you do those things, all of a sudden your life begins to glorify His name just as Jesus prayed shortly after that triumphal entry.
1: Some are known by great authority For kingdoms as far as eyes can see In royal robes they rule from thrones Waging wars they overthrow And call it victory my king is known by mercy my king is known by grace for the hope in his name and the power that saves my king is known by My king is known by an empty grave, owing oh, all that he does. My king is known. With thorns upon his brow what kind of king would leave his throne to make my sin and shame his own yet he gave his life for me i And no one is ever turned away no one is ever turned away Cause my King is known by mercy And my King is known by grace For the hope in His name And the power i